You have queued up The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation recorded at the New York City Concert Hall, Roulette. You can hear thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's past and present and find news of upcoming events celebrating innovation and imagination at roulette.org. Aren't you curious? In this edition, we feature the composer and artist Matthew Ostrovsky, whose music and sound works, gallery installations, and video manipulations are anchored in a creative mastery of hardware and software as well as a passion for storytelling and history. Ostrovsky discusses his artistic path and offers an analysis of a 2021 piece entitled Monograph a montage of tales of misfortune represented in music, science, and literature. And now, Matthew Ostrovsky. Matthew Ostrovsky. I'm a composer and sound artist. I was born here in New York City 
I actually came across electronic music in a kind of weird way. I was basically trying to avoid getting a summer job. In order to do that, I convinced my parents to let me take a couple of classes at the new school. And one of the classes was electronic music with Lefferts Brown. For one thing, Lefferts is telling me I have to go see DNA because it's the most important band in the world. And at the same time, one of my colleagues in the class, and remember, we're all 16, was suddenly like handing me records from the second Viennese school. And so suddenly this whole sort of world sort of popped on. And I was like, oh, this is wow. And something about the whole systematic nature of analog synthesis really grabbed me. You know, the whole sort of you put this and connect that and then that thing loops around to that and that sort of information flow kind of really appealed to me. And then I, afterwards, I went to Oberlin where I majored in history, which was also a pretty big interest of mine, but sort of took classes in the um, technology and music related arts program sort of consistently throughout, throughout my time there. Then after that, and I came back to the city, and I sort of barged in on the um, the free improv scene, centering mostly around, of course, the Amica Bunker. That was sort of my base of operations, and the people that I originally was was working with, and sort of had my initial real development with improvised music. Another thing I was doing which is kind of relevant to the piece we're mostly going to be talking about today, was I did a bunch of weird music theater-type performances. Um, I did a lot of uh, sort of theater of cruelty stuff with my then-musical partner, Bill Sternberg, in a band called Gone a Dog. All this time, I was working completely analog. I mean, partly that's what there was, but even when samplers came out, I was like, ah, who needs this newfangled silliness? And then around 1992, three, I sort of felt like I played this analog stuff out. And I decided to go to graduate school and learn about computers. Thank you. 
you know, I, I remember when I first came back to the city after college, someone told me, I was like, well, what do I do when I get to New York? And he said, oh, well, you got to go to roulette because that's where it's all really happening. And I guess I finally, I think the first thing I did was in 87, something like that. I don't remember. That was Gone a Dog, yes. It was, it, and again, that was music. That was a music theater performance. That was where we cooked dinner on stage and amplified the, amplified the cutting boards and the frying pans and had a vocalist reciting various food-related texts. Yeah, I remember. <laughs> it's really, it's it's still one of those great, one of my favorite moments of of theater was the moment when. Our vocalist slash chef, Kayla Cerati, pulled out the lobster and everyone just froze. Because, of course, look, everyone in that room had probably put a lobster in a pot. Or at least seen a lobster been put in a pot. But you do it on stage and suddenly, ah, it was great. Anyway, um, you know, it's always been somewhere where I was not willing to just go do an improv gig. New York is full of basements I can go do improv gigs in. And so whenever the opportunity arose for me to do something at roulette, I always felt like I had to come up with something. Having somewhere like that to where you really feel like you have to live up to the gig, but it's also not, you're also not having panic attacks because it's not Carnegie Hall. Um, it's been a very kind of useful, uh, it's, it's made, it's made roulette a really sort of useful place for me as a place to sort of, of make me have ideas and sort of push me a little bit. As I walk out in the streets of Laredon
to make a piece that although it was a live performance and I was hoping it would have the requisite level of energy for a live performance but that was really designed for the small screen that's one of the reasons that monograph kind of took on the structure that it has where there are sections of live performance sections of pre-recorded video with a lot of different performers because I, I did want to bring the world in but things that were designed to not have a camera looking at a monitor, but rather have the video content sort of take over your screen. So from the audience's point of view, they would be sort of shifting back and forth between a live performance, things on screen, and that were, that were happening in non-real time, and just to sort of give a tip of the hat to the fact that that was the that was the universe we were seeing this in. And it's funny because I actually, I was not really aware of how elaborate the camera setup was at Roulette. So I thought, okay, there's gonna be like one little dinky camera pointing at me. And then when I actually saw the, when I saw it afterwards, I was like, oh my God, this looks like a pro football game. You know, <laughs> I was like, wow. So I was also really, really impressed by the, the camera work that they did. The piece is called Monograph, and the I sort of came to it, you know, if I if if you think of all the random, slightly obsessive thoughts that have been floating around in your head for years and years, and if you think of them as like a deck of cards, and if I could I could sort of say, well, I shuffled the deck and just like dealt out the first eight. <laughs> the piece is kind of framed by a bunch of physics lesson videos by a guy interesting he was a american guy and he did these sort of physics lessons for kids videos for australian television for something like 30 years i originally got interested in him because there were a couple of spectacular failures because this is you know he's actually dealing with real objects right and he's like oh and now we're going to do this experiment and this is going to happen and then nothing would happen i wanted this piece to have a certain amount of humor in it so i thought well this is given the fact that you know a lot of the other material in the piece is actually about death and disaster <laughs> i thought oh well this would be kind of fun how do you do ladies and gentlemen and boys and girls i'm julia sumner miller and physics is my business and our very special business today has uncommon enchantment because the motion is beautiful to witness and wonderful to understand. I wish to do another pretty experiment with several pendulums. And I suppose maybe we could say pendula. This may be the plural of pendulum. Now what am I going to do? I am going to hang up three of them as I have them here soon to witness. One, two, 
three. Yes. So I would start this zero, zero, one, two, three, four, and I would count 20 oscillations. And what would I get probably in this laboratory? I would get about 13 seconds. Now I do it all over with this one. And I count 20 oscillations. And what would I get? I would get about 26 seconds. You thinking of something? Then I would do it with the 90 centimeter one. Zero. One. Oh, I should have stopped this thing. Yeah, because I'm not really clocking. Yeah, what's going on here? Huh. Well, there's something wrong with the notice now. This is this is the hazard we run when we depend on mechanical things. <laughs> I do a couple of readings as well. I read from a book called Novels in Three Lines, which is actually a collection of very short newspaper squibs, usually two or three sentences, um, written for Le Figaro, the French newspaper, in the right around the turn of the previous century by a very interesting character named Félix Fénéon, who was uh, an anarchist and an art collector. Um, he was a big supporter of um, the post-impressionist, particularly Seurat, and was also one of the first people to really bring African art to the attention of Picasso and all the modernists in Paris and was also quite possibly involved in some terrorist bombings. No one's really sure. Um, but he wrote these very brief little things that are basically just to fill spaces in newspaper columns, most of which are these very pithy uh, things about various bad things happening to people, which again, of course, seem to fit into the COVID moment. Standing sentinel at night in Gondreville Fort, Near Toul, reservist Allison of the 156th Regiment fell from the ramparts, which killed him. In the church at Chavannes-Savoie, lightning melted the bells and paralyzed a parishioner. A water spout devastated the village. Apprentice bakers de Paul of Belmont and La Ville of Rosanne drowned in the Loire. They lost their footing in a hole. Madame Bardin and Monsieur Blais are in hospital at Saint-Maurice. They didn't hear an eastbound Parisian coming and were hit. There are several threads running through the piece. One of those threads is songs that are sung by dead people, not by dead performers, but where the, the character who is singing the song is dead. And of course, one of the obvious ones is Streets of Laredo. But as it turns out, Streets of Laredo and St. James Infirmary, there is a school of thought that believes that both of those songs, which wound up sort of um, in our mind, sort of expressing two such polar different kinds of cultures, actually both have their roots in a song often called The Unfortunate Lad. 
which is about someone, usually a sailor or a soldier, coming across a friend of his, all wrapped in white linen, who is outside Locke Hospital. A Locke Hospital was a syphilis hospital. And he's in the process of dying of syphilis and says, oh, dear me, if only I hadn't been hanging out with all these loose women, I wouldn't have syphilis and be dying right now. And this kind of, this kind of spreads out. And there are a whole bunch of songs that are both melodically and harmonically related to this. And so you can kind of track this sort of splitting off one direction into the sort of, you know, jazz blues culture with St. James Infirmary and tracking off into this other direction, which is this, of course, cowboy culture. Although, and I do play a very brief clip of this, one of the earliest recorded versions of Streets of Laredo is actually sung by a black Mexican cowboy. So, you know, but it also come, but it also comes through the Caribbean. So, I mean, it's just a, you know, it's one of these fascinating sets of interconnections, um, which is another thing that I'm interested in. This is one of the sort of structuring principles of the piece. And one of the things that you see in the piece and here is there are several intercuts of people singing different variations of this song starting with The Unfortunate Lad. And what I did in those sections is I would take a, I would take the original recording and then do this kind of sound analysis on it whereby I would basically divide it up into a bunch of tiny little slices, like, you know, tenth of a second size slices. Then I would have these various singers sing that same song. So what I would then do is I would take the singer, the live singer, my friends, and have them basically sing into something which for every tenth of a second or however long it was, it would try to find the chunk of sound that was the closest match to their singing out of the whole sort of corpus of original of the original song. And this is this is actually a kind of known technique. It's called audio mosaicing. So the so the the goal of all those sections was to sort of use this living person to sort of channel this dead person's recording. Oh, 
Yeah, no, the piece, of course, I do live processing on Lee Armstrong doing St. James Infirmary. And so all these texts are kind of are kind of related and kind of not related in these ways that that have to do with these sort of big ideas, but not really in any super clearly laid out way. Cause I'm really trying to create a field of stuff. What's operating in the field is just sort of a place where well, you can try to link things together or you see what links together or see how the juxtaposition does or does not have meaning for you. And this is beautiful for you to remember, and I thank you once again for following our discourse. The Illustrated Stories of Artist Matthew Ostrovsky Presented during the height of the COVID pandemic for live stream viewing, the video component Ostrovsky references is posted on Roulette's website. These programs are made possible in part with support from the National Endowment for the Arts and the Grammy Museum and have been awarded Webby and Brooklyn Free Speech Honors. This is David Weinstein at the desk. You have been listening to The Roulette Tapes, a program of adventurous music and conversation. This series is produced by Roulette Intermedium. You can find thousands of concert recordings from Roulette's archives and news of upcoming events at roulette.org.